0: I mean, it's kind of cute, right? Hello, and welcome back to Kind of Cute, and if you're new here, welcome. My name's Bailey Evan, I'm your host, and on Kind of Cute, we discuss articles from The Cut and my general pop culture musings. Y'all, for the first time in a while, actually, that's a lie. I totally thought I had been sober, like, for the recent episodes, but remember last time I had champagne with mom. But it's fine, because this week I have a fancy drink. I have a little passion fruit pisco sour made by Kinsey. Feeling good. It's a Saturday night, about to go out and have some more drinks. So happy to have you guys listening. I first wanted to talk about some TikToks I've been posting recently. I'm really trying to be a TikTok influencer. Y'all know I'm just trying to be an influencer in general. So for the past like week, I've been trying to post on TikTok, you know, once a day. I've been trying. And the ones that have been getting attention have been my TikToks about Sam Levinson. And I wanted to talk about it on here because I haven't yet. And I think this dude is a certified creep, okay? So the first uh, article I talked about was one in The Independent with Sydney Sweeney. Sydney Sweeney plays Cassie in Euphoria. And if you've watched it at all, you'll notice that there's a lot of scenes where poor Cassie has her little titties out, or as TikTok would say, her yitties out. Her and big titties, they little. Oh, okay, her big titties, sure. So, you know, it kind of got the people talking like, why is she having so many nude scenes? Like, why are they doing this to her? And on the one hand, yes, does it track with her character and sort of her character's need for acceptance that she's seeking through the male gaze? Yes, but there's so many times it seems completely gratuitous and unnecessary. So this article in The Independent with Cindy Sweeney, she says, you know, I, and I'm paraphrasing here, but she says, I, you know, Sam was amazing to work with on set. I'm getting ahead of myself here. Sam Levinson is the director and creator of Euphoria. And she said, but there were times where I felt like the nudity wasn't necessary. So I would ask Sam if the scene could be done clothed. And I think to anyone who's watched the series, it's shocking that there was supposed to be more nude scenes when with Cassie than there were and in my mind the idea that the actress herself was having to make that call just didn't set right with me and of course I think a lot of people are applauding him for being willing to take her input and work with it but in in my eyes she shouldn't have had to do that in the first place and this was compounded even more When a few days later, I saw an interview with The Hollywood Reporter with Chloe Cherry, who plays Faye. On this season, Faye's a new character. She plays this kind of drugged-out prostitute. And I have to add, if she's not over 18, she's not a prostitute. She's literally just a child who's being sex-trafficked. But let's assume she's over the age of 18, and we can call her a prostitute. Um, She is, in real life, an adult actress... Starred in many adult films, and I want to preface this by saying just because you hire an adult actress for a role, in no way should you assume that that person's comfortable being nude in every scene. And on top of that, even on the set of an adult film, adult actresses should have and do have rights with doing what they feel comfortable doing. And I would say, from my understanding and just podcasts I've listened to and things I've read. Actresses are more protected on things like um, an adult film set than they are on a show like Euphoria because there's so much testing that has to be done. There's a lot of screening. There's a lot of making sure that the actresses and actors are comfortable with the scene they're doing, at least in, you know, high production, uh, legit adult film studios and obviously I know that's been exploited but I think because of the industry they've just been treated with more respect in recent years and correct me on that if I'm wrong but that's my take on it and in this interview with the Hollywood Reporter she says that when she very first arrives on set the scene that she first has to film is the scene in the show where she is being pushed up into the vents like the the air ducts So, she's being pushed up from behind by her boyfriend named Custer. He's played by a man named Tyler. And she's clothed in the scene. She's all bloodied up. And she says in the interview, you know, initially I was supposed to shoot that scene nude. So, her very first scene that she is shooting on set, and mind you, for most of the scenes in it, she is clothed. There is another scene. There's one scene I think I've seen so far where she is nude, right, Kenzie? Yeah. One scene. And she's she's been in a fair amount. We're on episode, like, five, I think, coming up. So there was just no purpose in her being nude for the scene. It didn't go to the plot. It actually doesn't even make sense to the scene at issue. And yet Sam had made the call for her to be nude. Oh, and this just sets so wrong with me. Because then Tyler, the man who plays her on-set boyfriend, has to step in and be like, you know, that's a lot. So explain to me why someone she just met that day is having to go to the director and say, you know what, I think it's a lot that she's having to film this scene nude. So to me, I'm just, I'm so creeped out by him. And don't get me wrong, like, I'm not approved when it comes to nudity on sets. And I do think sex scenes and nudity can play a role in the art that is film, but I think it becomes really glaringly obvious when it's gratuitous. And in this second season of Euphoria, the amount of gratuitous nude scenes is over the top. And people keep trying to justify it by saying, Well, you know, it's really groundbreaking because they're showing so many dicks. Well, for one, a lot of the dicks they show in this in this show are prosthetic penises. They're not the real actress actor's penis. Like, in the scene with Cal in the last episode, and I'm sorry if you haven't seen the show, but hopefully this still resonates somehow, there's a shot of him, you know, having his dick out and peeing. That was a fake prosthetic that had, like, a pee tube in it. So we're going to these lengths to protect, like, a dude having his actual dick out, yet a girl is supposed to have her titties flapping around whenever, whenever Sam wants. I just... I think he's in for a reckoning and I think he needs to get his shit together and start treating his actresses with more respect because I know they're saying that they feel comfortable, but as an outsider reading this, it's just, it's gross. So those are my TikToks I've been talking about. Oh, and then I also went back and read a really interesting article about intimacy coordinators from the Rolling Stone And I've actually talked about uh, intimacy coordinators on the podcast before because one time The Cut did an interview with one. And up until that point, I didn't even realize intimacy coordinators were a thing. And I believe that's partially because they really started only becoming kind of a standard on set after the Me Too movement. So in 2018, HBO uh, finally said, hey, we're going to make sure on every production we do that has intimate scenes, there's going to be an intimacy coordinator on set. Think how recent that is, and think about how many sex, nude, hookup scenes, because it's any sort of intimate scene. Even if it's just characters making out, heavy petting in the in a car, that will have an intimacy coordinator dealing with it. Think about how many scenes have been filmed in Hollywood. And this Rolling Stone article was just heartbreaking because it – Uh, ...talked about Emily Mead. She's in a show called The Deuce on HBO. And in the show, she plays... um, Actually, ironically, since we were just speaking about face, she plays a... uh, She plays a porn star. A porn star. And um, she was talking about how there were so many times where she had been in movies in the past... ...and felt so uncomfortable. And weirdly, she said she had been filming sex scenes since the time she was 16. Like, that alone should not have been happening... And even if you can say all you want, oh, it's simulated sex. No, a 16-year-old should not be simulating sex. And she said there was just so many times where she felt like she had to protect herself on set and she would bring her own little like vagina coverings so that she felt a little bit more protected. And so she was the person who went to HBO and was like demanding protection on set and something like an intimacy coordinator to kind of respect the actress's wishes on set. And only at that point, and because I think of the climate we were in with the Me Too movement, was HBO like, okay, yeah, you're right. Um, That's that's probably a good idea. And I'm guessing that a lot of that had to do with HBO not wanting to get their asses sued to high heavens. I don't know how much it really had to do with them wanting to protect the actresses. And then I read, sorry, I'm telling you, I went down a deep hole on this. Um, Oh, and I'm sorry, in that same article... They were interviewing a woman whose last name is Rodas, and she was actually one of the first intimacy coordinators that HBO hired, and then she went on to train a lot of the other intimacy coordinators that HBO uses. And she said that she spoke with people who were so traumatized by the stuff they saw on set that the actresses had to go through that they couldn't sleep at night. I'm sorry. Like, that is so, that gives me, like, a, a rock in my stomach hearing that. So they... God that HBO has them now, but the fact that it's not mandated that every single network and every single show has an intimacy coordinator, that's beyond fucked up. Um, so then I was reading an article with Sam Levinson, it was right around the time when the first season of Euphoria was coming out, and he talked about how he's so happy to have an intimacy coordinator on set, and he's like, I would never work um, on a set again without one. But to me, it seemed like the only reason he really liked having them there was not really for the protection of his actors and actresses, but because the HBO writers, the contracts that they have for the actors are so specific that he counted on the intimacy coordinator to kind of steer him the right way when he was going astray from that. For example, he talked about how the writers might say that a character can only hook up in the front seat of a car. So he'd be trying to film a scene with them hooking up in the back seat of a car. And the intimacy coordinator, who was Amanda Blumenthal for the first season, she would come in and she would say, no, like, per their writer, they can't do that. Uh, they need to hook up in the front seat. And he was like, well, just thank God she's there to deal with that shit. And, you know, there's rumors. I don't know if it's actually been confirmed, but I think it makes sense based on how you see her character in the show and what we've seen Zendaya in, that Zendaya has in her writers... For everything that she's in, she has a no nudity clause, she, so, so she won't be nude in anything you see her in. But a lot of actresses, I feel like they don't think they have the power to be able to put that in their contract, because they're like, well, what if it costs me the role? Because they can just go down the line to the next girl who's willing to do a full nude scene. I mean, someone like Zendaya, she's so established, she's so wanted as an actress, and she's an executive producer on Euphoria. So I don't know. I just think this whole thing is so fucked up and it just blows my mind that in 2022, there's the potential that actresses are still being exploited to do nude scenes in situations where they just shouldn't be. And they were also talking about the stuff that the intimacy coordinators provide and it was things like knee pads so their knees don't get sore when they're like literally on their knees like faking a blowjob. And just think about before, like, you wouldn't even have that. Like, you would have no protection. You're just on a hard surface on your knees filming for hours on end when that's not necessarily, like, what you signed up for. Whew. Okay. Let's move on to something a little lighter. This last week was the season, per- or season finale of And Just Like That, the Sex in the City reboot. This was also something I did a TikTok about, so I wanted to talk about it a little more on here. And I actually thought the last episode, it gave me hope. It gave me this little glimmer of shimmer of hope that the next season, which I believe has been confirmed, is going to be better. Because it was so symbolic of the characters getting back to their roots. You can just fast forward 30 seconds. These are like mild spoilers, nothing serious. But you see Carrie with her hair down a lot more, a lot freer. At the end, you see Miranda going back to her red hair you sort of see this like moment of reconciliation between, you know, Samantha via text message and Carrie's character. And you see the renaming of uh Carrie's podcast because she's now a solo podcaster and it's named Sex in the City. So it just really made me hopeful. Oh, you see a little makeout session with her boss at the end. I don't know. It just really gave me hope that Sex and the City is getting back to its roots. And I just hope to God that in the next season, we are not acting like people in their early 50s are one step away from the grave. Because my parents are in their early 50s and they're, you know, yeah, sometimes does their back hurt? Yeah. Like, do they get sore a little easier? Yeah. Do they need full on hip replacements? Like, are they having hearing aids? Absolutely not. So let's not act like you're dead at 55. Um, Oh, I also wanted to have a Vera Wang clarification from my last episode. So last episode, I was saying how Vera Wang's daughter went to my college. And I got a text from Birch State And she's like, what? Vera Wang's daughter? Like who? And right after I recorded that episode, my mom was looking it up. And she's like, I don't think her daughters went to Dartmouth. And the weird thing is, is like there was these kind of sketch articles where it was like, oh, she has two daughters. She's like, oh, that one went to UPenn, then Harvard, then Columbia. But it, I don't know if it's just because they're so private. There's nothing online that says one of her daughters went to Dartmouth. But I swear one of my friends like knew her daughter. And now I'm like, was I hallucinating? And my mom was like, no, you told me that back when you were in college. So guys, maybe I need a redaction for that. Maybe that's not true. But I swear, at one point, Vera Wang's daughter was at college with me, and it was my friend Matt who knew her. So I need to actually—I should have texted Matt before this to get the the four one one. But yeah, just to clear that up. Oh, speaking of my college friends, Anna wanted me to talk about the Martha Stewart Clee Depot collab, and I don't mean to talk about more Martha Stewart every episode. Obviously, we talked about her last week, but. The marketing of this is incredible. So, Clé de is, like, such a high-end makeup brand. I am the biggest hoe for makeup. The biggest chunk of my money is probably spent at Sephora, Ulta, and eating out. Right, Kenzie? Like, Mm -hmm. without a doubt. Mm -hmm. And... I have never even purchased something from Cletopoe because like one freaking concealer wand is like 60 something bucks. Their foundation is, I think, close to $100. So I think it makes so much sense that Martha is doing a collab with this very high-end luxury brand and they did a TikTok. It's on Martha Swords TikTok and she is standing with a teacup, looking literally flawless. Like how good does she look? Amazing. Amazing. And she's standing in front of the infamous thirst trap photo of her by the pool where she also looks perfect. And just listen to this audio. How I create my perfect selfies. Oh yes. This was some of my best work. First project fabulous. Next only conceal where needed being effortless is key. Now add a touch of gloss. Then say the magic phrase. Clé de Poe, de Poe, po. And if you aren't familiar with TikTok audio, that song that's overlaid in the background is like a popular TikTok song. And then the other voice speaking was text to speech, which is another uh, thing you can do in TikTok. And it's just her, like I said, standing in front of her infamous thirst trap, yeah like holding a teacup, then applying lip gloss. It's just, it's it's perfection. There's there's not much more to say about it other than it is one of the best um, luxury brand collabs I've ever seen in my life, hands down. Emily and Perry really need to take notes for this for their next season. Oh yeah, she could never. She she wishes. I'm also ashamed I haven't talked yet, or watched yet Gwyneth Paltrow's Architectural Digest tour. That might need to be saved for next week because y'all know that's going to slap. I mean, from what I can see, it looks very tasteful, beautiful, very Gwyneth, very goopy. I can't wait to watch. All right, on to our first article of the day. Ye gave out luxury party favors at Julia Fox's birthday by Olivia Truffaut Wong. As we've talked about, obviously Kanye West, now I guess officially Ye, and Julia Fox are having the most absurd PR relationship of all time. Such a spectacle. Love to see it. So, apparently, she turned 32 on February 2nd. You know, she actually does give Aquarius energy. I have to say, like, I think Aquariuses are always, like, really hot and competent and have this, like, really effervescent personality. I know it's always, like, oh, the Leos, the Scorpios are, like, the hotties. I think the Aquariuses are the hotties. I'm just going to put it out there. Because so many of my friends who are Aquariuses, like, y'all have that je ne sais quoi, okay? Um... <laughs> So apparently her friends left with the best party favor ever, Hermes Birkin Bags. It says Ye has been known to give Birkins to his significant others. He famously gave Kardashian a one-of-a-kind painted Birkin bag in 2013. But as far as Olivia knows, he's never done anything quite like this. So he gave baby Birkins. They retail for a 10K, which is shocking. I thought baby Birkins were more than that um, because they're they're pretty good in size. And there's an Instagram video circulating of all of the guests holding their Birkin bags. And it made me die a little inside. Not just the fact that they were getting free Birkins and I'm not, but just because they they all looked a little dead in the eyes. It was like, we know this is performative art and we even feel weirded out by it. However, apparently not everyone went home with a Birkin bag. So, Tommy Dorfman posted on her Instagram... Uh, I love you. I'm immensely proud of you and jealous that I didn't get a Birkin about Julia Fox. Tommy Dorfman is very popular with the celeb crowd. And the only thing I've seen her in is 13 Reasons Why. But again, I think she just has that je ne sais quoi. Like, people love her. People want her at their events. I'm just, I'm jealous. Also, speaking of Kanye, I don't know if y'all have seen, but there's been a lot of public beef between Kanye and Kim Kardashian over North because Kanye was posting these Instagrams about how he's really upset that Kim has a TikTok with North and is posting videos of her and Kim released this very kind of you know PR but very heartfelt message on her Instagram just being like I'm the main provider of care for these children and I'm very aware of like what I put out about my kids and I'm careful with what I allow North to put on TikTok And you just really need to kind of mind your own business and deal with your three lawyers that you've hired over the past year because you can't keep one. thought that was kind of an interesting jab. Um, Yeah, I was just like, damn, okay. It's always sad when, like, celebrity drama becomes public and it involves the kids. To me, that's kind of just, like, almost the untouchable stuff. So I feel so bad for Kim because I know they show their kids – on TV, but I do think they are very aware of it and they're sort of measured in what they choose to show. So my heart goes out to her. You guys know I have a soft swap for Kimmy. Oh, I wanted to talk about this because we were talking about Birkenbags. I didn't even tell you this, Kinsey, but the other day I was in Saxaw Fifth Mm-hmm. And obviously, they sell a lot of uh, designer bags, you know, Can at sell a discounted price. They don't sell Birkins. Birkins would never. I was like, wow. <laughs> Damn. Uh, um, but they had these this shelf full of uh, allegedly Louis Vuitton bags. And I was like, that's so odd. Because Louis Vuitton is famously known for literally burning their bags rather than letting them, like, be sold at a TJ Maxx runway section, you know. Certain brands allow it, like Gucci, Bottega uh YSL Saint Laurent you'll see them on TJ Maxx but you that's why me. I thought this was so odd that there's like these Louis Vuitton bags now I've been a little designer bag ho since the age of you know third grade and I could spot a fake from a while away and I was like these are fake Louis Vuitton bags like Ooh. one of the telltale signs is that the monograms or if like you have the damier pattern they match up along the seam None of these bags patterns matched up along the seam. And I'm not a pro so it could be that these certain styles of bags like don't match up, but I as far as I know don't they, know a bag where they don't match up. Like, like did they mess up like with production or something? Like you know how sometimes it'll that'll be like the reason why they like, get sold at like No, but that's what I'm saying. Louis Vuitton would just would light those on fire. Yeah, they would, would not be it. giving them to sacks off Fifth. And I'm I am 98% sure these were not authentic bags and yet they were being marketed as such and sold for over a thousand dollars so maybe that's my next investigative reporting actually that is (laughs) i've also heard some rumblings that even though the real real and sites like that really pride themselves on authenticating all their bags that sometimes they sell fake bags on there so just keep your eye out girlies all right our next article this is from vulture which is another vertical of new york mag and I was just enraptured by this story. It's called The Talented Mr. Bernardini. A young Italian is accused of pulling off the book's world, the book world's most perplexing crime, Who Is He? by Reeves Wiedemann. I actually first saw this story on TikTok. I'm telling you guys, there is such a wealth of useless but useful knowledge on TikTok. You will always be ahead of things on there just by looking at your for you page because it alerts me to so many things I wasn't necessarily aware of. And I saw this right after Filippo was caught, and he was caught on January 5th, and even since then, I was fascinated, even though I was just seeing a little three-minute story about him, but I think at that time, the story was more circulating within the literary world, and finally, we're getting some more mainstream media stories about it. So they write on January fifth, Bernardini, a 29 year old working in the foreign rights department of Simon and Schuster's UK operation, was arrested by FBI agents at John F Kennedy Airport and charged with conducting a bizarre spree of digital robberies that has baffled the world's of book publishing, Hollywood IP, and cyber security. He has been doing this for the past half decade. So I mean, I feel like they put that sound dramatic. So you know, for over five years, and he's been spent so much time impersonating agents, editors, literary scouts, film producers, translators, and authors. And he would create fake web addresses for publishing companies. So he would do things like write the name but make it one letter off so for example instead of simon and schuster he would do simon and Schusfer.com, and he would do the same thing with email address so like after the at he would make it really similar so on just a cursory glance you wouldn't necessarily notice that it was someone trying to scam you and his whole goal was to obtain unpublished manuscripts and he or i mean they don't really know yet if he was potentially working in concert with other people stole the digital identity of hundreds of people writing countless emails in the idiosyncratic vernacular of the publishing world with a real-time grasp of the industry's information flow. And they made off with hundreds of manuscripts before they were released. One of them was Sally Rooney's latest novel, and the books were not being pirated online. No one was trying to get ransom money for them. There was no bookshop auctions that were being disrupted. It was just really strange why this person was doing this. So in 2021, the book thief started copying passages from manuscripts that he had just stolen, and then he would send them back to the authors for no reason other than just to what it appears to be just taunt the authors. And if someone tried to spoil his fun, he would go, he would like the the shit would hit the fan. Let's put it that way. (laughs) So, at one point, he was talking to an editor in Stockholm, and he wrote this in Swedish. He said, I hope you die of the coronavirus. Like, holy shit. It's so rude. And then, uh, this author of this says that last spring, the book thief became aware that Leila Shapiro, who's the author's um, colleague, were looking into this case. So, people were kind of aware of this for a while. You know, like, there's been mumblings of this going on, but... They just couldn't track down who was doing this. And the other funny part is that there were suspicions of who was doing it in the literary world and people were kind of openly blaming these people. And now they're all like, shit, we need to send them so many edible arrangements for like low-key smirching their name <laughs> when it wasn't them. Um, so the book thief reached out via email pretending to be a literary scout and then an editor in the Netherlands and then agreed to meet with the author of this article and Leela in person. And Leela su- suggested that they meet in Cobble Hill, and then they changed their mind and they wrote this: "How about fuck you, Hill? Or can I meet you at Silly Cunt Square? Take my advice: drop this stupid article and stop with it immediately." That was all caps with multiple exclamation marks. Don't you and your friend Reeves have better stories to report? I can't believe you're being paid for this rubbish. I mean, see, he goes in. But that was like that con... Was that the... That was like that Yes, con- exactly. One. We're getting to that. Kinsey, you're getting ahead of the Sorry. plot. Sorry. Okay. You know, Kenzie hasn't been here for a while. She doesn't know what to do with herself. <laughs> so he actually faces oh, wow. up uh, to 20 years in prison. She just informed me that she's just been playing Wordle the whole, whole time. Um, but he has pleaded not guilty and... And I love these quotes from the judge. So the judge overseeing this case is Judge Colleen McMahon, and she expressed her own confusion about the case. She said, what exactly did he do? She asked that to the prosecutor. And she was so baffled because she understood that, you know, when things are stolen, a lot of times it's to steal the IP and then pirate them and profit off them in that way. But she just did not understand what this man wanted with these books and with the manuscripts. And so she says, so he wanted to read books before they were published? Interesting. Very interesting. So this dude actually had a literary internship at the age of 24. And the FBI alleges that it was as early as that when he began stealing the manuscripts. So this is, again, it's been a long plot, you know. And he eventually tried to get into the translating world. And he sort of succeeded in doing that. Because he would claim that he could translate an absurd amount of languages. This dude was probably putting them into Google Translate. Because he said he could do <laughs> Mandarin and Korean. And apparently that was sort of a red flag because most people who translate Mandarin don't also translate Korean. And again, this was totally just a ploy for him to get the manuscript sooner. Because if he had to translate them for foreign markets, he was getting them before they hit market. So then the article goes to say, If what the government alleges is true, Bernadini also didn't seem to hesitate in going after people who had given him opportunities. In 2020, Mira Trenchard, a literary scout in the UK, dealt with a bizarre series of events. In one instance, Trenchard emailed a friend who was being impersonated to ask if she knew about the scam. I didn't, the friend replied. How sinister. Minutes later, the thief sent a similar reply to the same message. No, I didn't, the thief wrote to Trenchard. How sinister. So he just added different, (laughs) um, you know, he added some little exclamation marks. Somehow, the thief seemed to have access to Trenchard's inbox. As it happened a few years earlier, Trenchard had hired Bernardini as an intern. So he was like holding on to these things for a long time. I can't imagine the Excel sheets he had to keep track of all of this. And... The crazy thing is this dude, as I mentioned earlier, was actually hired by Simon & Schuster UK to work in the international rights department. I like what more could he ask for? So the indictment against him charges him with wire fraud and aggravated identity theft. But as the article notes, it remains silent on the remaining question as to why the access to manuscripts and information flying around publishing could have been helpful as Bernardini tried to make inroads into the industry, but not enough to make the effort worthwhile. Some in publishing believe that Bernardini must have had some unnamed accomplice. Hollywood has a hearty appetite for getting its hands on adaptable IP. And Bernadini did seem to attend a lot of movie premieres. And then I love this because it quoted from his Instagram in 2016. And it says, Oh my God, just 40 meters from goddess hashtag Amy Adams at the premiere of hashtag arrival at hashtag BFI, hashtag BFI London Film Festival, hashtag Oscars 2017, hashtag film. Wow. Also if you haven't watched Arrival, great movie, great great movie. <laughs> so I just I I don't know, I think he just wanted to be a part of something bigger. You know, it's it's kind of sad at the heart of it. And it says um Actually, this person agreed with me. It says, The idea that anyone could love books as much as the thief even appeared to engender a certain empathy. I hope they don't deal with him too harshly, Jesse Ball, a novelist who had his manuscript nabbed last year, told me via email. After all, reading so many MS PDFs must constitute its own special kind of punishment. I mean, true, like, this guy could not have had a spare moment between pretending to be all these people, getting all these manuscripts seemingly just sitting on them unless he was doing some underground black market shit but even if he was that never came to fruition with it getting to the point where people knew that these manuscripts were um their ip was getting out early and i've really seen a theme lately in some podcasts i've been listening to with this idea of motive and We're so intent on wanting to know why people do the things they do. And there's two podcasts I've listened to recently that if this intrigues you, like, listen to these podcasts and keep your eye on this story. I will as well. Um, The first one is Sweet Bobby. And it's the story of a catfisher. And again, just the long game that this catfisher plays. I don't want to spoil the plot of the podcast for you. But it is fascinating and it really reminded me all of these stories remind me of each other and it reminded me of another one called chameleon hollywood con queen that shit will blow your mind like again you're just like why because there in that one there was a little bit of monetary gain involved but you just you you literally have to listen to these things to believe it because I think as anyone who's just going about their normal day-to-day life, it's really hard to get your head around why these people do these things, and it's just a fascinating look into psychology, sociology, anthropology, so if you're into any of that sort of vibe, I highly recommend both of those. Again, that's Sweet Bobby and Chameleon Hollywood Con Queen, two other podcasts, if you've know you gotten through all of your kind of cute episodes, and I think it's time for us to get to our legit shit. Uh, Speaking of other things I love, I have been loving loving the glow recipe plump plum hyaluronic acid moisturizer i'm putting a link in the show notes i am so picky about moisturizers i i don't know like i have super super dry skin so i always kind of think i need a thick moisturizer for it to do anything and i've used so many hyaluronic acids over the year there's something about this moisturizer that just does it for me as a nice like lightweight kind of gel formula um i love that You buy the container, and it's one of those ones that's deceptive because the container looks way bigger than it actually is. It just has, like, a little pod in it. But I love that you can just get the refillable pods so it's not as much packaging waste. The refillable pods are a little cheaper. All of Glow Recipe stuff is so cute. You've definitely seen it on Instagram and stuff. They're, like, very pink. They're known for, like, their watermelon line. This was my first item I've tried of them because I definitely thought they were one of those things that was, like, all, you know, fluff, no substance, just looking cute on your little, you know, shelf. I'm telling you guys, I, like, really want to branch out and try some more of their stuff. Let me know if you've tried anything from them that you just, like, can't live without. And if you've tried this moisturizer, let me know. I just think it's really good. And I, I hope you guys enjoy it, too. Thanks for listening. I hope you have an amazing weekend and week. And I will see you next week. Bye.